0: All right, if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be studying verses 7 to 16. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. The title of the message this morning is Unity in Diversity. Unity in Diversity. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16, says the following. But grace Phrase right there, that he might fill all things. Remember, one of the keys to the book of Ephesians is what? God is uniting all things in Christ. Ephesians 1.10. So that's key. So when it says here at the end of verse 10 in chapter 4, that he might fill all things, that's something to pay attention to. If you write in your Bible, circle that. Maybe right next to it, one ten. So you can go back to chapter 1, verse 10 and see how these things relate. All right, verse 11. So in light of him wanting to fill all things and Jesus uniting all things, now we get to the key here. Verse 11, and he gave, Christ gave, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers. Verse 12, why did he give them? To equip the saints, that's us, Hagias, holy ones, saints, What for? For the work of ministry. Why? Ultimately, for the building up the body of Christ. That's a metaphor in scripture for the church. That's us. That's what we're doing today. We're the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Imagine that. How's that for a goal? That we together would attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'd say that's a lifetime goal. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Verse 15, rather, rather. You see that rather? That's a contrast. Circle that. Rather. This is Now, pay attention here. Verse 14, we don't want to do that. We do want to do verse 13. We don't want to do verse 14. But rather, here, verse 15 is going to summarize this whole idea of of maturing in Christ, of growing up. This is the main thrust of this text this morning. I mean, imagine God speaking to you right now and his hand here above my head with his finger pointing at you. You are responsible for verse 15. As His church, as His called out people. Rather, speaking the truth in love. What does that mean? We're going to investigate that. What does it mean to speak the truth in love? Speaking the truth in love... Here it is. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. There's that metaphor of the body. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, that's us, when each part, that's you and me, is working properly. Are you working properly this morning? Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Builds itself up in love. That's the goal. Let's pray. Lord, what a goal that we would represent corporately the fullness of Christ. Unimaginable, Lord. Uh, Something far beyond anything any human, any group of humans could ever think to do. And yet you've called us to this. You've called us in love to work together as you work in us to represent you. Christ, to be your body on earth. You're the head. You rule and reign. From you come all the directions. And as it were, in a body, the the, the nerve center and the brain and the impulses to to direct every part of the body. But but we're your body. We're to represent you in all your fullness. Who is adequate for this, Lord? None but the one you've called. None but the one whom you've filled with your spirit. And so in faith now. We lean forward and say, speak, Lord. We are listening. Empower, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Our bodies are amazing, amazing, intricate systems that baffle doctors and researchers. I mean, on a regular basis, after thousands of years of medical knowledge and study, they're still finding things out. And to that end, I'd like to give you a few fun facts about the Bible. I've tried to vet all these facts out. I trust they're all true. Some of them are amazing. Uh, but this is just, just listen to this for a second. Here's our body. In our brain, nerve impulses to and from the brain travel as fast as 170 miles per hour. Almost as fast as I travel on the turnpike sometimes. Just kidding. The brain operates on the same amount of power as a 10-watt light bulb. Some of us have a more dim light bulb than others. (laughs) Listen, this one's amazing. The human brain cell can hold between 3 and 1,000 terabytes. Now, I, I thought to myself, what's a terabyte? All right, A terabyte is 1,024 gigabytes. What's a gigabyte? A gigabyte is 1,024 megabytes. Now, I know what a megabyte is. So do the math, guys. The brain is amazing. Your brain uses 20% of the oxygen that enters into your bloodstream. Now, the brain only takes up 2% of our body mass and yet consumes more oxygen than any other organ in the body. That's why it's extremely important for the brain not to be deprived of oxygen. So breathe deep to keep your brain happy. <laughs> and swimming in oxygenated cells. Here's one that uh, now explains a lot for me. Human hair is virtually indestructible. And if you've ever wondered how you, your clogged pipes remain thus, Hair cannot be destroyed by cold change of climate, water, or other natural forces, and it is resistant to many kinds of acids and corrosive chemicals. Yes, it is. Did you know that the human heart creates enough pressure to squirt blood 30 feet? 30 feet. And that the acid in your stomach is strong enough to dissolve razor blades. Please don't eat any, but it can. The human body is estimated to have 60 miles of blood vessels. So let me give you a perspective about 60,000 miles. The distance around the earth is about 25,000 miles, making the distance in, of your blood vessels could travel if laid out more than two times around the earth. When you sneeze, your sneeze is clocked at about 100 miles per hour, which is why it's really hard to keep your eyes open when you sneeze. <laughs> and when you cough, your cough is clocked at 60 miles an hour. And during your lifetime, you will produce enough saliva, you ready for this, to fill two swimming pools. Yeah, that's gross, I know. Okay, that's going to keep a few of you up tonight. Oh! All right, we're getting to the end here. It takes 17 muscles for you to smile and 43 muscles for you to frown. And finally, you use... 200 muscles to take one step, all right? So depending on how you divide up muscle groups, just to take a single step, it's about 200 muscles. That's a lot of work, folks, when you consider that most of us take about 10,000 steps a day. And it's that brain located in the head with those nerve impulses flying at 170 miles per hour that fires properly so that 200 muscles are being fired and told to move so that I don't fall down these stairs. So that I don't don't walk like somebody who's drunk. I don't walk like my little one-year-old granddaughter, Mary. (laughs) It's hilarious watching her walk. The body is amazing. It's diverse, but it's held together. There's a unity from the head, from that brain. And just as there is unity in the diversity of our bodies, and the brain functions to control and fire at the proper times so that each part works as it should. So in this text, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, really that's one paragraph, what we see here is a unity that Corey preached on last week that's expressed in a diversity, we're going to look at that this week, a diversity of gifts that leads to maturity in Christ. And that's really the main point of this text. The propositional statement of this text, I believe, is this. Unity in diversity produces maturity in Christ. Unity, we're going to review the message Corey preached last week, briefly, in diversity, and the message this week is definitely about diversity, diverse gifts given by the ascended Christ, leads to or produces maturity in Christ. The goal is maturity. The goal is maturity. Now, point one, just by quick review, if you weren't here last week, please access our website and listen to that message. It's an excellent message. But Corey, last week, point one, talked about unity. Unity. Unity point one. he said that, that there's this sevenfold unity, the sevenfold unity, and if, you're, if you've got your Bibles open, look at, at Ephesians four, one to six and particularly verses four to six, there are seven is a sevenfold unity there, right? One body, which is Christ's church, one spirit, the same holy Spirit and dwells all of us guys all of us that are true believers in Christ. One hope, Christ is the hope of glory. One Lord, Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. One faith given to us by the Spirit, faith in Jesus Christ. One baptism, we've been baptized into Christ, we've been baptized into the church by God. And one Father, one Father. God is our Father in Christ. We are adopted into his family. You see here the unity of the Godhead, don't you? Really, when Corey preached last week, he said, we're maintaining the unity of the Spirit. It's not our unity. It's a unity of God, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They've been united forever and ever. No beginning, no end. And they're simply saying, now display that unity in the church. The unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the unity to which God has brought us. If we are truly Christians, if you are truly a Christian, God has brought you into unity. His unity. This is what we share at, as a church. Now, why this unity? This unity is so important because remember, in Ephesians 1.10, just turn there real quick. Ephesians 1.10, remember, Corey taught this at the very beginning of this series. What is the purpose? Really, what is one of the purposes of this book? It's this. It's to reveal God's plan. And look at Ephesians 1.10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. So if God is one, there's a unity there, and God and man were one before the fall, before sin, and then when sin came, God and man were divided. God's plan, his story, history, his story, all through the ages, and we're part of that through the ages, is to unite everything in Christ. Those rebel things, those rebel forces, us rebels, everybody's going to be united in Christ. And so that's why unity is so important. We're not trying to create unity. We're simply walking in the unity God has created in Christ. First, unity with him. We could never create that through forgiving us in Christ. And then unity with one another. The unity of the spirit. Now, point two. Look at diversity. So this is where you have now a contrast. Okay, so if you notice at the end of six... It says, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now notice verse 7. But, it's, it's important. That, that word is very important. It's going to indicate a contrast. But, grace was given to each one. You see that? So he's doing the sevenfold unity. One, 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 one. But, grace is given to each one. Now you've got this diversity. You've got this diversity. So continuing to read verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So what you're seeing here is now the head of the body. If you think of that metaphor that scripture gives us and that I use as an opening illustration. The head is now going to distribute some things to the body. So though the body is diverse, the head is ruling it. It's, it's reigning over it. The brain controls our body functions. When the brain starts going, our body functions start going, right? I mean, just as a quick aside, and I, I wrestled whether to share this or not, but I'm going to. Our bodies are so fragile. Guys, I'm 55, and I used to, I used to really struggle with migraines, horrible migraines. And the doctor told me two, two, two pieces of news about migraines. Number one, discouraging. Um we don't know where migraines come from. And we haven't figured them out, and we probably can't cure you, Mr. Pino. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I mean, I remember getting laid out with migraines when I was in college. Second piece of good news, like, really smart people tend to get them. I'm joking about the second one. I'm joking about the second one. (laughs) Okay, but he said, when you turn 50, they're going to probably go away, and we don't know why. And you know what? When I turn 50, they've gone away. But here's the thing, guys. Last night and today, for the first time in a long time, I got a migraine. And and what happens, if you know anything about migraines, your vision begins to go splotchy. It's, it's, your brain cells are constricting, so you can't see. You know, it's like, it's called an aura. It's like, everything's like dark and everything, you know. and And that hit me last night when I was trying to finish this message and hit me this morning in the back hallway. So I'm looking at my notes. That's why I walked in late. <laughs> I'm looking at my notes, I'm going oh, this isn't good. I remember this. And just now, I'm starting to be able to see, and I'm just waiting for the headache to hit. (laughs) You know, it hasn't hit yet. And Corey prayed for me, and I ask you to pray for me. Why do I share that illustration? Not to make a big deal about me, but I'm just trying to share with you, isn't the body a delicate thing? Like, why is that happening to me? You know, I'm thinking, Lord, I'm using the body as an illustration. Why is my brain doing that? Why are my blood... Vessels constricting. But just that little bit of constriction makes a whole difference for me. Do you see where I'm going with this? Okay, so it's a diverse body. It's being controlled by the brain, the head. And if one little thing goes off, it throws the whole body off. Remember that when we get to the end of this message. Because see, remember what is the purpose. That this body is to fully represent Christ. Not just Alpino. I mean, I want to be whole. I want to be able to preach well for you this morning. And and I prayed that way, and I believe God's going to give me that grace. But even more importantly, we need to be whole. We need to be well so that we represent Christ because this is God's plan. And when we get little migraines, when one part of the body constricts and doesn't function properly, there's a rebel cell. We call that cancer. Or or an arm gets put out of joint. Or a relationship gets, gets kind of out of sorts, or a leg gets a little messed up. We have conflicts, and the body starts limping. Or in my case, if you can't see, you start bumping into things. It was really freaky last night, okay? Because I'm driving home from the office, and I really can't see very well. I'm going, oh, Lord, (laughs) how close is that car? And I'm just saying, and there was like a cop behind me. I'm thinking, I probably look like I'm drunk here, you know? It's 11.30. No, officer, I'm a pastor. I'm just coming from my church office. Sure, buddy. But that's what happens, right? And so God doesn't want us as a church to be lurching around Miami Lakes looking like a half-drunk person or limping around. He wants us to be a whole body that's representing Jesus to our community. Hence, he makes us individually healthy so that corporately we can represent him. Now, the mystery is it's not just Palm Vista. It's Calvary Chapel. My friend Bob it's, it's It's Jose Prado. It's Sovereign Grace Church Miami that are just about to get going here at 11 in the morning. It's, it's, it's Brian Brookens in, in Riverside Christian Fellowship in Fort Lauderdale. It's, it's all the churches that are preaching the gospel today and corporately we're his body. And I'm not sure how all that functions, but I do know this. God's doing it. He's uniting all things in Christ. And since we're his body, he unites things in Christ who's the head, places them under his feet. Guess who his feet are? Us. Isn't that amazing? And yet we get migraines, don't we? Okay, more on that. Point two, diversity. So back to verse eight. Therefore it says, so he gives grace gifts to everybody according to the measure of Christ's gifts, verse eight now. Therefore it says, and here he's going to quote Psalm 68, 18. And this quote is going to be very important in our text because our text is going to explain the first line of this quote. Verses seven to 10 are going to explain the first line of this quote. And then... um, the second line of this quote is going to be explained by verses 11 to 16. So listen to the quote. It's a Psalm of David, probably written around 1000 BC. So David is writing this. And he says, therefore it says, quote, When he ascended on high, he led host a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Okay, so this when he ascended, verses 7 to 10 of Ephesians 4 are going to comment on that, interpret that, and then... Him giving gifts to men, verses 11 to 16 are going to explain that. So this, this verse 8 is very important. This quote of Psalm sixty eight eighteen is very important. We're going to get to that in a moment. Let's continue reading here, verse 9. In saying he ascended, there you go, it's talking about the ascension. What does it mean but that he also had also descended into the lower regions? Verse 10. He who descended is the, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things and he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers okay let's stop there so let's talk about this verse 8 let's talk about this verse 8 when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men so psalm 68:18 is where is what paul is quoting and so let me read to you Psalm sixty eight eighteen. If, if you have your Bibles open, just put your finger in Ephesians four eight and flip over to Psalm sixty eight eighteen. Psalm sixty eight eighteen says the following You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So this Psalm sixty-eight eighteen is written by King David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe God's deliverance of his people from bondage, leading them out of Egypt in triumph to Mount Sinai, which is in the desert. And in the process, he destroyed kings and nations, Egypt, Pharaoh. And then it's also describing God continuing to lead his people in triumph. I'm doing biblical theology here. This is good stuff. Old Testament truths that are going to be fulfilled in the New Testament. Old Testament types that will be fulfilled in New Testament anti-types which is just the fulfillment of the type. So here you have God leading his people in triumph. He's he's defeated Egypt and Pharaoh. He leads them to Mount Sinai, which is where Moses went up to get the law and came down to give the law to his people. And then it's also describing God leading them from Mount Sinai in the desert 40 years later into the promised land. And he's leading them, and this is really describing God ascending Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the temple mount. It's where the temple would be built eventually by Solomon, David's son. So it's a, it's a psalm of triumphal ascension of God who has defeated his enemies and led his people through in victory. Friends, Paul quotes it here because he's saying Jesus fulfilled that victorious ascension. Jesus delivered us from the enemy. Jesus delivered us from the Pharaoh of this world, Satan, from Egypt, this world's system. And he defeated kings. He triumphed over them in the cross. And three days later, he was raised from the dead. And when he ascended into heaven, he now is ruling and reigning as a king. And just like in the kings in those days in the first century, and actually in the, uh, the, um, 1000 BC, kings would ride into their, their kingly cities with their enemies in tow as captives, a train of captives and they would ascend to their throne, and God ascends to his throne on Mount Zion. But Jesus ascended to his throne at the right hand of the Father. And that's what Paul is saying. That's why Paul quotes this song. Jesus fulfills the type in the Old Testament. Now look, let me just prove that to you. Look at Ephesians 1, 19 and 22. Ephesians 1, 19 and 22 says the following. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power, Jesus' power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might, verse 20, so that He, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Do you see that ascension? That, that ascension to His throne? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And Jesus leads his enemies captives. Their heads are bowed. They're in chains. The strong man has been bound. Jesus has won the victory. Colossians tells us that. On the cross, he made a show of them openly. Battle is over. He's ascended. He's ruling. He's reigning right now. What a joy to those First century Christians in Ephesus who were so superstitious and so afraid of these other gods, these pagan gods. But what an assurance for us today as well, who worried similarly. Jesus is Lord. He rules and reigns today. Going back to verse 21 of Ephesians 1, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, he reigns forever and ever. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet. Remember, we're his feet. And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. Isn't this amazing? Everything is going to be united in Christ. He's the head. He's the ruling victor, victorious king. I just want to say something. If you're here this morning and do not know Christ in this way, you're a guest. Thank you for coming. I would never want to offend you unnecessarily. But I think that God would be speaking to you this morning. That if you have not bowed your knee to that King and acknowledged your need for Him and confessed Him as Lord and Savior of your life, that you will not you will not be in that heavenly kingdom with Him. But rather, you will be part of the enemies that are thrown into the lake of fire. And the fact that you're here this morning, I trust, is God drawing you to himself and letting you hear the truth of the gospel. And I just appeal to you, repent now. Believe now. It is the Holy Spirit who is working in you. Be like those Romans in Acts 10. This Roman centurion, he's a commander. And he says, Peter... Come and preach the gospel to us. And Peter goes and preaches the gospel to them. And their Romans. Peter wasn't even supposed to be there. And in the middle of his sermon, they, that God saved them. And they interrupted Peter's sermon by pr- worshiping God. Feel free to do that if God does that in your life. <laughs> okay. But about, okay. But what about the second line of this quote? Because if you noticed carefully, I'm back now to Ephesians 4.8 which is quoting Psalm 68, 18, which is talking about God's ascension to Mount Zion, which Jesus fulfilled in the ascension to the heaven. But would you look at the second line of Ephesians 4, 8? What does it say there? And he what? Gave gifts to men. Do you see that? First line is he ascended on high, he led host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Here's the only problem. What does the second line of Psalm 68, 18 say? He received gifts from men. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Have we found a problem? Did Paul, in his haste to write this, forget the psalm? I've done that many times. Did Paul, maybe like some people, some critical judges of the text say, oh no, Paul's trying to make his point, so he deliberately misquoted the psalm? No. So which is it? Did he, did he receive gifts from men, or did he give gifts from men? Both. Both. Let me see if I can explain it to you. Because I can see you looking at me like, hmm. I see that look. And, and here we're doing biblical theology. There is a sense in the Bible that when God comes in triumph, he does come receiving gifts from men, and as he receives those gifts from men, and oftentimes the gifts are men themselves, he then turns around and gives those gifts back to men. Example, Moses. Moses, Moses ascended Mount Sinai and received the law and then came back down and gave the law to Israel. Could it be that Christ fulfills this type as well when he ascended on high and received the Holy Spirit and then on the day of Pentecost gave the Holy Spirit to his people? There are pictures in the Old Testament when God would receive the Levites. He would receive them like a gift. And then what does he do? He turns around and he gives the Levites to minister to the people. Do you see that? I think what's happening here is the Holy Spirit is, use, is, is saying to Paul, interpret Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen for me. This is the interpretation. I receive gifts from men, and I turn around and give those gifts to the church, my body. I believe that's what's going on here. So what do we see here? We see the verses 7 to 10. The ascended Christ, the one who descended to earth. By the way, when it says there, he descended into the lower regions. Doesn't mean he went to hell. Not at all. It means he just came to earth. The same who who descended is the one who ascended. This Christ came as a man to lead us out of slavery and triumph by living the perfect life that we could never live and dying the sacrificial death for our sins on the cross and rising from the dead three days later. And then, 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven and he received from God that Spirit and he gave the Father and the Son, give the Spirit to us. And he gives us gifts. He gives us gifts. As a matter of fact, if you look in 7 to 11, there's this idea of him giving us gifts. Grace has been given to us, verse 7. He gave us gifts, verse 8. He has given us, verse 11, these gifts. So verses 7 to 10 interpret the first line of the Psalm, 68, 18. And now verses 11 to 16 interpret the second line. Because the diversity of gifts that Christ gives, these grace gifts that he gives, the ascended Christ, those diversity of gifts are given for a purpose. For a purpose. And so let's look at the third point here. Maturity. Christ builds up his church in love through us. Christ builds up his church in love through us. Now let's, let's pick up verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. This is the ascended Christ giving gifts to his church. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Just keep in mind this, this metaphor, this picture of a body being matured so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, and here's the point, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. This, this picture of a body and Christ being the head is just being driven home to us here. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint. So this picture of a body, even stronger. These joints that hold my arm together. The, these ligaments, the, the cartilage, the bones, the bone marrow that provide the, 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 the nutrients in my bones, the calcium that causes them to grow, and, and, and the blood vessels that flow, those 60,000 miles worth of blood vessels. They cause my body to grow. So see the picture. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, if verses 7 to 10 interpret the first line, the ascended Christ, verses 11 to 16 interpret the second line, he gave gifts. Here's how they interpret it. What are the nature of those gifts? Verse 11 does that. And what's the purpose of those gifts? Verses 12 to 16 do that. And this is is the meat of the sermon now. Everything else has been like a long introduction. Now is the meat of the sermon. What is the nature of the gifts? And what are the purpose of those gifts? Nature and purpose of the gifts that the exalted Christ gives to his people. So let's look at the nature of Christ's gift. And we find the nature of Christ's gift in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. I'm going to stop there. So verse 11 and then verse 12a. So here we see that the nature of the gifts are people. People who are involved in some, some form of ministry. And people who are involved in a ministry of the proclamation of the word. And these people, their function is toward other believers. You see where it says at the beginning of verse 12? To equip the saints. So, so these in verse 11 are deliberately emphasized. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, or shepherds and teachers. They're, they're specifically, deliberately emphasized since they provide the church with the teaching of Christ for the equipping or edification of the body. You see, they're they're highlighted here because they enable others to exercise their own respective ministries so that the body is built to maturity, to wholeness, and to unity. See, these listed in in verse 11 are, are really ministers of the word, aren't they? They're ministers of the gospel, this revealed, declared, and taught gospel. But, they equip the saints. So, so what I'm saying here, and I think what the text is saying here, is those that are given as a gift aren't just those five. I think they're representative. It's all of us. It's all of us. It's all of us. Everyone is gifted here. Everyone is gifted. You're gifted. You're gifted. That's, that's, I think that's in the text. I, I want to challenge you with that. It's not just a pastor that is gifted. You're gifted. You're gifted. Okay, so what is the purpose of the gift? Look at verse 12. B. Well, verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You see that? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So, So the one who descended is the one who ascended, who gave gifts so that we might be built up, we might be equipped... To do the work of ministry so that the body of Christ would be built up. So, so Corey and I are to be teaching you the word so that God's body, Christ's body would be built up. This is, that, this is that diversity of gifts so that the body in unity would be built up. Christ himself is building his body and he's using us as ministers. He's using you to build his body. What does it mean to equip? What does it mean to equip? It simply means this to, to prepare, to train, to disciple, to make someone adequate or sufficient for something. That's what we're called to do. And you're called to be equipped and you're called to say, how can I be prepared to serve in the body? And what is this work of ministry? Well, it's the activity. It's the activity of the saints for which the leaders are to prepare and equip them. Christ has given special ministers for that so that they will make God's people fully qualified, thus enabling to serve their Lord by serving one another. I was talking to someone recently, and and when we look at home groups, we, we, we aren't just looking at a home group leader to do all the work in ministry. No, no, the home group leader is saying, hey, we would love all of you to be ministering to one another, not just in a home group setting on Wednesday night, but Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday afternoon. But you need equipping. You need equipping as the word of God comes to you. See, here we have the unity, the head, Christ, sevenfold unity, the diversity, the gifts, not just to the leaders, not just to the pastors and the teachers, but to everyone. And now we have the maturity so that the body would be built up. Equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. Equip the saints. You're the saints. We get to equip. For the work of ministry, it's work. It's one another stuff. Why? For the building up of the body of Christ. Here's that maturity piece. So the question we need to be asking ourselves at the end of verse 12 is, what does maturity look like? And that's what verse 13 answers us. Look at verse 13. So if we are to be equipped by leaders who preach the gospel, and if we are to do work so that the body would, be, would grow up, what in the world does a mature body look like? We'll look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Notice how doctrine, faith, truth is at the center of this. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. Bentley preached about that a couple of weeks ago in that prayer at the end of chapter 3. That we might know Christ, the love of Christ. It's a personal thing. So it's the unity of the faith, the the doctrine that we believe. It's the knowledge of the Son of God. It's very personal. To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, what verse 13 does, it gives us a positive view of maturity. It tells us that we're to be united in our faith. That we're to know the Savior. It tells us that that we are to serve one another. You know what it tells us? That our growth in this is not in isolation. There's just no way that we can grow like this apart from good godly leadership, apart from the one another's. God's people collectively become this. But I've got to tell you something at this point. The church is already the fullness of Christ. Okay? So so if the goal is in chapter in verse thirteen that we would become the fullness of Christ, or this mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, I'm here to tell you we're already the fullness of Christ. That's what verses that's what chapter 1, verse 23 says. We read it. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We're his body, we're the fullness of him who fills all in all. We're already the fullness of Christ. So why Al does Paul, say we need to work and you need to equip us and prepare us to do the work of ministry to become the fullness of Christ because this is that wonderful already not yet that Corey talked about last week. This is what Bentley talked about a couple of weeks ago. We are becoming who we are in Christ. We are the fullness of Christ and we're becoming the fullness of Christ. You do understand that this future element, which is the church is the fullness of Christ is still present. So the apostle is praying here that his readers might be filled up with the fullness of God. That was the prayer that Bentley preached on from uh, Ephesians 3.19. Now, in the immediate context, the goal to be reached is mature manhood. And this is defined by the fullness of Christ. The maturity of this growth is measured by nothing less than Christ's full stature. He's full. The church is fully him. The, 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 The already... What, what, what is an existence in the future comes into the present. <laughs> yeah, the glorified Christ provides the standard at which his people are to aim. This is, this is the part that our standard, our goal is nothing less than the fullness of Christ. The corporate Christ cannot be, cannot be content to fall short of the perfection of the personal Christ. That's why we bring our A game here. It's because of whom we represent and what he has called us to be and what will be. What will be isn't now, but will be one day. So we act now based on the confidence of what will be. The interpreter just fell on the ground. I heard him. And it's Marcos. So actually it's a great joy for me to do that to him. (laughs) I can hear him. Do you, do you get that? You who are struggling with a certain sin right now, you who have been in a a conflict, that's me. (laughs) I'm coming out of some conflicts lately. And I feel like, you know, the not yet is all over me, man. I look in the mirror and I go, you do not look like a glorious bride. I'm not a cross-dresser, okay? But you do not look like a (laughs) glorious bride. It's a metaphor, please. You look pretty, not yet. But by golly, the Bible tells me that the already is true. It's already true. I'm not experiencing it fully now, but I'm working toward it. With my last breath, I'm going to work toward it. I'm going to preach it, even though at times I don't live it. I'm going to preach it, and I'm going to say, let's go, guys. Look at God. We're going to be like that one day. He is full. He is reigning. And we're becoming what we are and will be. That's who I am. That's my father. Even though at times I act like an orphan or who I was. Thank you, Corey, for that illustration last week. But that's not who I am. It does not define me, nor does it define us. And now look at verse 14. If verse 13 describes positively what maturity is, verse 14 describes negatively what maturity is, and whenever you see a contrast like this, just write the word contrast between verses 14 and 13 and study that contrast. So that, so that, We may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the exalted Christ has given gifts to the church so that by the building of his body, immaturity and instability will increasingly be left behind. So that we might resist forces that might corrupt or destroy the church. Look at this contrast between the mature person of verse 13 and the children of verse 14 greatest illustration, at least that helped me, was when we were talking to men a couple of years ago, and we said, guys, you got to grow up. Because for some of you, man, the picture is, your wife is pushing you in a baby carriage, you got a little bonnet on, you're sucking on a bottle, because you're a baby spiritually. And she's the spiritual one pushing you into church in the morning, metaphorically speaking. You're more concerned with sports, you're more concerned with everything but God. And your wife is leaning forward into God. Grow up. And I'm speaking to myself. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) Counseling offered afterwards on that one. (laughs) But do you see the contrast here? See, he's not just talking about individuals here. He's talking about us as a church. Stop acting like a baby. Start acting like who you are, mature men in Christ. Christ is mature. Christ is full. Act like that. That's who you are. Stop acting like immature children corporately. How do immature children act? Well, look at the text. They're instable. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Notice that maturity here is defined by truth. Truth and love. It's interesting. When you look at verse 13, it's talking about a mature person. Hey, everybody, that's singular. You got that? Plural, singular. Mature person. Look at 14. Look at that contrast. What does it say? That's right. Children. That's plural. You want to know a picture of an immature person? It's the person that says, my rights rule over everything. It's all about me. A bunch of children. I mean, trying to get a bunch of children to do something is like herding cats. You know how much I love cats. It's all about me, baby. But as we mature, we become one person. Let's all pull in the same direction. Let's go. Mature man. I don't want to go. Children. Children. Do you see that contrast? And then the second contrast is is one of a big ocean liner. Huge battleship. Waves can come and hit it. It's not going to bother it with little, small, rudderless boats. (laughs) We're in Biscayne Bay, you know, yesterday and last night when those storms were going through and the waves are just battering. I'm like, ah, I'm going to (laughs) die. That... That's an immature church. Every wind of doctrine comes and hits it. And they're going to just go with it. They're going to just... Because they don't know the truth. What are those winds of doctrine? What is this battle of the truth? Well, there are many. I think we've talked about some of them. Um, I, I, think, I think at the center would be, how do we define the gospel? And what about the substitutionary atonement of Christ? And if you don't know what that means, you're in a little small, rudderless boat being battered in Biscayne Bay. Get a good theological dictionary. Talk to some of us. Listen, come to meetings. Come to man up next week when we talk about this stuff. And get into a cruiser. Get, in, get, into a, get your family into an aircraft carrier. And the way you do that is you understand truth individually so then corporately we can come together and we're not battered by every wind of doctrine. Did Jesus have to die on the cross to bloody death? That's up for grabs today. That's just one. There are many. I don't have time to go into them. But this battle for truth. Why is it a battle for truth? Because look at verse 15. How do we then mature? Verse 15 is going to give us a summary. If 13 is what maturity looks like, 14 is what it doesn't look like, 15 is how we get there. Look at verse 15. Rather, see that word rather? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Here's that metaphor of growing up, going from children to a mature person. Grow up in every way into him who is the head, that's Jesus, into Christ. So here's the question. What does speaking the truth in love look like? What does speaking the truth in love look like? Well, I believe that speaking the truth in love, when you, when you study this text when you study what he's talking about here, he's talking about doctrine, he's talking about truth, he's talking about the gospel, he's talking about all those things. So speaking the truth in love is speaking right doctrine to one another. Let me just read you a quote here from um, uh, Peter O'Brien. Yeah, okay. Accordingly, The apostle is not exhorting his readers to truthfulness in general. So he's commenting on this term, speak the truth in love. To truthfulness in general, or speaking honestly with one another. Okay, now let me just interpret that for you. Speaking honestly with one another. Hey, brother, uh, I've got an observation for you. (laughs) You Hey, brother, can I talk to you about your pride? Hey, sister, uh, can we just talk about, just fill in the blank. That's not primarily what it's talking about here. But rather, um, however appropriate or, or important this may be, rather, he wants all of them to be members of a confessing church. What does that mean? Confessing church. We have a confession. We believe in the standards of scripture as articulated by confessions, the Westminster Confession. There are other confessions. But a confessing church is we have standards of doctrine that are biblical, that we stand on. That's the truth we're to speak to each other. With the content of their testimony to be the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. This truth, now catch this, which is guaranteed by God and is depicted as part of his armor. When we get to chapter 6, we're going to see there's this armor and the truth is like a belt which believers are to buckle around their waist as they resist the onslaughts of the enemy of evil. So this truth is the the gospel that we speak to one another primarily. Primarily not bringing our sins to one another or just being, you know, really honest about where one another is having problems. No, it's the truth, and that begs the question, do you know the truth? Now, I I was in a situation here recently where this was just brought painfully clear to me. And, And I just, I was made aware that at a crucial point in someone's life, I didn't speak the truth of God's forgiveness as strongly as I could have. I believe it. But I I didn't articulate it as strongly as I could have. If you know what I mean, when someone's asking for forgiveness, and and we might say you're forgiven, but, but to really take that opportunity to express what the Bible says about forgiveness. To talk about doctrine and truth and Psalm 103 and your sins are removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and actually speak the truth to one another. That's how the church is built up, folks. That's what this is talking about. And then notice, we're to speak the truth in love. Do you see that? Speak the truth in love. Oh, friends, truth and love are never enemies. They go together. Love is a prominent theme in Ephesians. This truth and love should be held in tension. Speak the truth in love. Don't you see that? We're to know God's love. We're to know Christ's love. That's that message that Bentley preached from Ephesians 3. And then we're to bear with one another in love, what Corey preached last week. And then this week, we're to speak the truth in love to one another. And in in, in chapter 5, verse 2, we're to walk in love. Love is the key here. This book, this this paragraph begins with love, bear with one another in love, and then now look at verse 16. It ends with love. It ends with love. We're to speak the truth in love. Why? Because here's the goal. Verse 16. From which the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love let me be clear about this that builds itself up in love that is that is an intransitive phrase there we don't build the body up it is being built up by christ christ is the source christ is the head the the impulses come from the brain down to the foot not the foot doesn't tell the brain what to do the brain tells the foot what to do based upon what the eye see the eye see a stare the brain says okay guys go down and 200 and some muscles just fired perfectly because the brain was controlling it This is Christ. This is the unity of the spirit and the diversity of the body, which then produces a maturity, a mature body. Christ being the head. Christ being the source. Christ building his church up in love through us. Christ is the goal. Christ is the source. But catch this. He builds it up as each part. Look at that in verse 16. When each part is working properly, Are you working properly, friend? Are you working properly? Or are you a rebel blood vessel? Or finger? Or foot? God does the growth. Jesus provides the growth. Jesus is the head. But he uses us to build the church. You can go back to the points, please. He uses us to build the church. We're joined together as a body. You have a role, the importance of you as a member. Oh, it is so key that every member of the body to whom grace has been given, remember at the beginning, it's not just the leaders, but it's all of us. Every member of the body to whom grace has been given, they receive this necessary enabling and this power to perform their proper function so that the growth of the whole body is in proportion to and adapted to each one of us and it's God's supernatural power that empowers us. It is the resurrection power of God. It is the power of the ascended Christ coming to his throne, receiving the Spirit, giving us the Spirit. Do you function in that in the church? I was, I was back here praying for God to heal me, my migraine, going over my notes, and I'm listening to, um, to Ileana and to Dina and Odie, as they were talking and setting things up over here, they didn't know I was there. These women were filled with the Spirit. It, it, it brought me, they were laughing and joking, and I think there were some chips that were, had gone, that were no good, so they were trying to make sure we didn't give our guests chips that you know are no good, so that they don't get sick. And they were, they were greeting each other with joy, and there was laughter, and I thought, the Holy Spirit has filled these women. And they're functioning in their ministry according to the power of the ascended Christ who when he ascended on heaven received gifts from men and turned around and gave gifts men and women to the church to serve and serve in the power of the Holy Spirit that the ascended Christ only the ascended Christ could give. And that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you and me and we fulfill our ministries by the power of the resurrected Christ. Exercise your ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit, friend. Because when God calls you to Christ, he calls you to his body. She's not perfect. She's growing in perfection. The process will be completed one day on the final day when Jesus comes back. And that already not yet tension sometimes can be a little difficult, especially when the not yet predominates over the already. But it's going to happen. The ascended Christ guarantees it. And that is my appeal to you this morning. I'm going to end with this with this illustration of the body, a mature body. Uh, yesterday, had Mary over, my little granddaughter, and she's hilarious when she walks. Actually, she doesn't walk; she runs everywhere. But she looks like a drunken sailor, and she waves her hands. It looks like she's conducting an orchestra. Cause she just, just, you know, she's. That's cute, right? Yeah. It wouldn't be cute if I walked around like that all the time. There's a, there's a guy in my neighborhood who's an obvious stroke victim. He lives right behind me. And every morning I see him walking back from 186th Street. And, and he, he walks kind of like Mary because he has to walk like this. Mary kind of walks like this. Why? Because the body's not healthy. There, there was a blockage. He can't move one arm. Oh, friend, I know we look like that sometimes. I look like that sometimes. But we've got the fullness of Christ to look forward to in all eternity. Let's be who we are and have faith for it. Let's pray. Lord God, sometimes we stumble along, waving our arms frantically, an uncoordinated body, hindered by parts that don't function properly or rebel against what the brain tells them, hindered by blockages at times, folks just not around, not functioning blood vessels not allowing the, the life of the body, the blood to flow through it. The Life is in the blood. And yet you look at this halting, often dirty, almost even pathetic body. I mean, when I see this gentleman who lives behind me, there's almost a, a sympathy for this man. I always wave at him. He waves at me with his good arm. But I could just see the pain in his eyes. In fact, I drive by him and think, well, what if one day I had a stroke? And, and people saw me walking in a neighborhood. That's all I could do. I couldn't function, I couldn't preach anymore. And Lord, there's some people that are, that are like that right now. They're just, they're on the sidelines. They're, they're clogged up with the things of the world, with, with sins, with wrong perspectives, with a lack of truth. Lord, I pray that I could speak the truth in love. I I pray that we'd speak the truth in love to one another, not correcting each other, not bringing observations to each other, but just speak what the Bible says about us in an encouraging way and that it would heal us and unclog those blood vessels and and reverse those strokes and and get those paralyzed arms and hands and those limbs that are lame would be put back into place and we would walk, no, we would run. We would run to the battle. We would run to the call to be your people, the fullness of Christ. What a call. What a glorious call to give my life to. Oh, God, may it fill the hearts of young men and women now that this greater call, this greater yes would help them to say no to the call of the world, the call of worldliness and selfishness, and not just in our youth, but in all of us. That we'd be that body together. that we'd we'd break that tape of heaven like a runner, our chest breaking the tape after a long marathon, and we'd hear, well done. You suffered much, but you did well, Palm Vista. Oh God, we do it together. (laughs) Only you can do that. So would you do that in Jesus' name?